welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The latest term of the Supreme Court, which wrapped up on July 8th, saw the court decide several cases with major implications for religious liberty. While the outcomes of Espinosa v. Montana, Our Lady of Guadalupe School v. Morrissey Baru, and Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania have been largely viewed as victories for advocates of expanding religious liberty in America, the court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch, and holding that an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, has been viewed as potentially having adverse consequences for the cause of religious liberty. What are we to make of these latest developments in the Supreme Court's religious liberty jurisprudence? Today, we're joined by David French, senior editor at The Dispatch and a former constitutional litigator with Alliance Defending Freedom and the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education to discuss the current status of religious liberty, both in the courts and in the culture writ large. Please stick around after the episode for a brief conversation with Caroline Roberts, who for the last two years has been the producer and host of Acton Line. As Caroline prepares to start a new job at Alliance Defending Freedom, we get her reflections on the growth of Acton Line under her direction. You can check out resources for this episode in our show notes, posted at blog.acton.org. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend. Acton Line is available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I'm joined now by David French, who is the senior editor at The Dispatch, thedispatch.com, where I am a member, and I highly encourage other people to be as well. Fantastic publication. He is the co-host of the Advisory Opinions podcast, along with Sarah Isger, which is a great podcast, and I highly recommend you listen to that as well. And the author of the upcoming book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, an honor to be on. So three major cases with religious liberty implications before the Supreme Court, uh, all of which we have the opinions for now. So let's tackle them in kind of ascending order here. First, uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor case. Now, this is the third time that the Little Sisters have been before the Supreme Court, and it looks like it may not be the last time that the Little Sisters are before the Supreme Court. Uh, you don't mess with the nuns, apparently, because they are <laughs> basically three for three. So could you give us a background on what's at stake in this case and particularly why it's been three separate times before the Supreme Court for them? Yeah, so this is rooted in the Obamacare contraception mandate, and the unique aspects of the contraception mandate itself are very important to understand. I mean, this is very complicated, so I'm going to quote Princess Bride and say— uh, let me, what, what was it? Let me explain. No, that's too much. There's too much. Let me sum up. Um, that what happened is when Obamacare was passed, the statute, Obamacare itself, did not spell out exactly what kind of, uh, for example, preventative care or uh, contraceptive care would be mandated in employer-provided coverage. 
it left that to the executive branch to define the exact reach of the statute. This is a separate and very big problem in American lawmaking right now. Uh, It is becoming increasingly common for Congress to pass laws that are uh, not self-executing in a sense. They don't don't say everything that they need to say. And so they leave blanks for the executive branch agencies to fill in. So do you remember, Eric, that uh, famous statement from Nancy Pelosi, well, we have to pass the law to see what's in it? Yes. Um, Everyone laughed at that. And I'm not sure if she intended this way, but she was actually correct that we wouldn't know what Obamacare truly was until after it was passed. Why? Because it was vague enough that we had to have the executive branch agencies fill in the blanks. And so that's what created the contraception mandate was was the Obama HHS. Hold right there. So a question on that. This seems to be a a frequent theme with Congress now is that they, the legislation they write and what actually does get enacted seems often to defer to federal agencies. Do you, one, do you think that that's accurate? And two, would you say that this is happening to the extent that it is because it's just another symptom of Congress not really desiring to do its job the way that it should? Yeah. However broken you think Congress is, it's more broken than you think uh, is the way I would put it. So essentially what's happening time and time again is, number one, Congress is not making hard calls. Okay, this so this is going to this is going to come up later on in our discussion, especially around uh, the uh, the Guadalupe case. Congress is not making hard calls. And then when it does make a call, when it does draft a statute, it's not drafting statutes well. So what does that do? It ends up punting the meaning of the statute to either the executive branch agencies or the courts, often both, as in this case. So so what happened is Obamacare, the Obama administration creates a broad contraception mandate that has super narrow religious exemptions for churches, not so much for religious institutions. Um There were two kind of parallel challenges to the contraception mandate. One came through the very famous Hobby Lobby case, which Hobby Lobby is not a religious institution, but it is a secular business with religious leadership that objected to being forced to uh, provide uh, some abortifacients within the contraceptive mandate. The other set of challenges were launched by religious institutions that um, had religious objections. So the court narrowly ruled for Hobby Lobby 5-4 and uh, also took up uh, Little Sisters, but then sent it back to the lower courts to basically say, hey, see if y'all can work this out. They, they, they vacated the um, lower court decisions against the Little Sisters and sent it back, but not with an opinion saying what the outcome should be, but sent it back to work it out. So spoiler alert, nobody worked it out. Uh, Trump wins. Trump uh, reinterprets the Ob- Obamacare statute. The Trump administration reinterprets the Obamacare statute to broaden religious exemptions for uh, co- the contraception mandate. So then you have uh, lawsuits not from conservatives against the Obama regulations, but from progressives against the Trump regulations. And at issue was, was the contraception mandate that the Obama team designed actually mandated by the statute or was there flexibility in the statute to create different accommodations by administration? And then also lurking in the background was the idea, was the question, which is sort of the key question of the whole case is, 
is the accommodation that their little sisters request mandated by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? So are we confused enough yet, Eric? <laughs> I, need a, I need a flow chart to follow, but uh, I, I think I'm keeping up. So basically what happened is the court, by a 7-2 majority, uh, said that the Trump administration didn't violate the Administrative Procedure Act when it changed the contraception requirement. It did not rule that the accommodation to the Little Sisters was required by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's super important because what happened is seven members of the court essentially ruled that there's some flexibility here. What does that mean? Well, if Biden wins in November, which is quite possible, uh, though not certain, um, then they're going to probably bring back the Obama-era contraception mandate, and there's still not a case saying that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act blocks the Obamacare contraception mandate as applied to institutions like Little Sisters of the Poor. So that's why we keep um, on our podcast, we keep trying to come up with names for various Little Sisters sequels. So the last one we called Little Sisters 2, Vacated and Remanded. So look for Little Sisters 3, The Sistering, uh, coming to you two years into or two and a half years into the next Democratic administration. So this is likely again to end up at the at the Supreme Court. What do you can you you know, I, I don't want to ask you to prognosticate too much, especially because trying to read what the court might do at a different question before it is always difficult. But what way do you think is most likely that this ends up getting resolved? I think it likely gets up ends up being resolved if the current composition of the court holds, sure. which is not a given. But if the current composition of the court holds, I think it likely gets resolved 5-4 in the Little Sisters' favor eventually. But the reason why there hasn't already been five votes on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act question is, you know, we know that Justice Roberts, not all the time, but sometimes— uh, likes to get as broad a consensus in an opinion as he can. And by punting on a RIFRA, he gets seven votes. And so a 7-2 opinion in favor of sisters, little sisters, it's less contentious. It's less disruptive to uh, the law as he might see it. And there we are. And so the reality is of the little sisters' opinion is it is 95. Five three percent about the Administrative Procedure Act, and to the extent that it has any bearing on RIFRA, um, it's m maybe some positive, perhaps some positive inclination in indications about RIFRA. But we'll have to wait till the sistering uh, to find out. So it. If I am to judge from my social media feed, which isn't always the best representation of reality, but it never, seems to never me, is. it seems to me that. This case is approaching um, Citizens United level of what people think it's about is not at all what it is about. Because the reaction that I saw from friends on the left was, how could it be possible that people are being denied birth control coverage in 2020 America when, as you just laid out, this is about more about the Administration, Administrative Procedures Act than it is actually about that top line issue? The only area of law where you see more what I would say either outlandish ignorance or deliberate misinformation, um, more outlandish ignorance or deliberate misinformation on is the argument about online free speech in Section 230. Yes. Uh, that's the ultimate. Um, this is 
the next. This is next. This is next. I guess to quote, uh, to go back to Princess Bride again, I don't think it means what they think it means. It's a very, very, very limited decision with minimal implications for religious liberty yet. So, David, we'll pencil you in then for two, two and a half years from now to come back yes. and uh, talk about uh, the sistering. Let's move on to the Espinoza case. So this is on, again, on its uh, top line evaluation, a case about educational choice program in Montana. Yeah. Uh, but what was really at issue here, what's underlying it, were what are known as Blaine Amendments, or at least a state-level Blaine Amendment, uh, which has a history in anti-Catholic bigotry. Can you describe what the Espinoza case was about and the, the implication it has for Blaine Amendments? Yeah. So Blaine Amendments, and, and just a little bit of history will be helpful for people. Um, these are uh, were born from a um, U.S. Senator James Blaine, and they were. If you read them through modern eyes, you don't ca- you don't understand what they are because essentially what they do is they prohibit the direct or indirect provision of public funding for sectarian institutions, and which you know for a generation raised on sort of a flawed version of the Establishment Clause, that sounds like oh yeah right yeah the government can't fund a religious institution. But in the context of the times when we had sort of our soft Protestant establishment, the government schools, the public schools were kind of your Protest, they were, they were sort of low energy Protestant religious schools. Um, they had, you know, daily Bible readings out of the King James Version of the Bible often, which uh, obviously since it's the King James Version is not. Uh, the favorite Catholic edition of the Bible. You had Protestant prayers. You had Bible lessons taught from a Protestant perspective. And then with a huge influx of Catholic immigrants, a lot of people began to believe that their Protestant schools, the public schools, were under threat. And they didn't want to have any kind of public support for Catholic parochial school education. And so sectarian was code for Catholic so this was; these were really anti-Catholic, um, and fortunately, Blaine failed in his effort to make it a federal constitutional amendment to modify the First Amendment to include Blaine language. But these spread like wildfire in state constitutions around the country. These really hideously anti-Catholic, explicitly anti-Catholic state constitutional admission, um, constitutional provisions. So they're all over America. And they're motivated by anti-Catholic bigotry. And what they have ended up doing is time and time again, placing religious institutions and secondary citizen status when it comes to participating in public programs. So one of of a a case from a couple of years ago that chipped away at a Blaine Amendment was called Trinity Lutheran. And this involved a program in the state of Missouri where the state provided, in essence, like surplus tires or, or the the mass and substance of surplus tires to resurface playgrounds. And a church wanted to get uh, its playground resurfaced. And the state of Missouri said no, because why? They had a Blaine Amendment. And so the court there in a seven to two decision said, uh, no, you know, when you're coming to, it's a resurfacing playgrounds is a completely secular purpose. There's nothing religious about resurfacing a playground. And so you shouldn't, if you have a church that's resurfacing a playground, you can't disadvantage it just because it's a church, no matter what your Blaine Amendment says. So that's sort of like if you're, uh, you've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Black Knight at the Crossing. 
Well, that's like King Arthur, like lopping one of the limbs off of the Black Knight. <laughs> so that there's still a Blaine Amendment. It's still hopping around, but it's lost a limb. Well, this next case out of Montana, which was involved providing tuition grants to parents to send their kids to private schools, um, Montana has a Blaine Amendment. And it was a Blaine Amendment enacted when it became a state, and it was a Blaine Amendment that was reaffirmed, I believe, in the 1970s. Um, And when the tuition aid program was created, uh, it was challenged, and the Montana Supreme Court said, wait a minute, we have a Blaine Amendment. We can't fund this school uh, under our Blaine Amendment, but we also can't discriminate against religious institutions, we believe, under the First Amendment. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to let nobody get any funding. So they just knocked the funding out completely. And so what came up to the Supreme Court was, was that a constitutional, A, was that that Massachusetts, I mean, uh, Montana restriction constitutional, and or B, did the Montana Supreme Court's remedy of just wiping out, wiping clean the whole program, was that constitutional? And so what the Supreme Court said this time, not 7-2, like Trinity Lutheran, but 5-4, was, no, that's not, co- what happened was not constitutional in Montana, that if you are, you don't have to create a funding program for private schools. You don't have to. You can just have funding for public schools. But if you create a funding program for private schools, you cannot exclude religious schools from the scope uh, because the creation of the program for private schools was not intended to advance religion. It was intended to provide more school choice. But we're not going to treat religious schools as second-class citizens. So that was uh, that lopped off one of the other limbs and maybe an arm of uh, the Black Knight Blaine Amendment. And so it's just kind of sitting there as a torso on the ground saying, come back here and I will bite you. <laughs> but the Blaine Amendments just can't do much anymore. So it was, a, it was a positive decision. Didn't eradicate Blaine Amendments, but it just really narrowed them and narrowed them and narrowed them into almost what I would call functional harmlessness. Um, but they didn't, this decision didn't really radically transform the landscape of American religious liberty because to take full advantage of this provision, you have to have a state legislature who's going to create and fund programs that religious groups would also be eligible for. Um, and so there's steps that have to be taken after this ruling that would to change any sort of material facts on the ground. So you could view it in a sense then as somewhat of a a moral victory over the history of Blaine Amendments that we have now determined them to uh, be, as I think as you put it, almost, you know, uh, incapacitated, that there's not really an effect that they can have. So perhaps a more of a moral victory than a legal victory in that sense. It's a moral, it's a, well, it's a victory for liberty in the sense as it's a victory for the law of liberty in that it, it. Uh, prohibits states from treating religious institutions as second-class citizens in the provision of state services uh, and state funding. So that that's a that's meaningful. Absolutely, that's meaningful. Its practical effect, though, is mainly potential, because again, it just depends on what state legislatures do with this n- uh, newfound obligation to treat uh, religious and secular institutions alike. I have heard some suggest that. Uh, something they found irregular about the courts entertaining this case and deciding it as they did is that the Montana Supreme Court had implemented a remedy where they basically said nobody can get any funding, so nobody is harmed here by the amendment uh, 
being there and, and uh, everybody's fine now. It's nobody gets anything, so everybody should be happy with nothing. Are you surprised at all that the court decided to entertain this when that remedy already existed? And do you agree with those who say that it seems somewhat irregular for the court to jump in in this case when there seemed to be a remedy already in place? Well, I, I thought the Justice Roberts' attack on that uh, reasoning was was pretty effective, actually. You know, because what the Montana Supreme Court basically did is, so let's imagine you had a statute that said um, anyone is eligible for public funds except for, and you designate a people of a particular race or nationality. And so it's a, a racially discriminatory statute. In the, in the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court says, whoa, racially discriminatory statute, nobody gets public funds. Um, that what was ending up happening was a penalty was attaching uh, to the intended recipients of the aid as a result of the unconstitutional provision. And that fact that the penalty was universally felt didn't cure the unconstitutional provision of its constitutional defect. And I think that that's a quite compelling reasoning in my mind. So let's move off uh, Espinoza to Guadalupe, uh, which is the probably the case with the biggest implication for religious liberty. So this is there's actually two lawsuits here that, if my understanding is correct, that are wrapped into essentially one decision. And what this has to do with is the ministerial exception. So you have both cases are Catholic schools who had employed teachers um, who decided not to renew the contracts of those teachers. And I understand the circumstances for the individual teachers there are, are different if you look at the two cases separately. But the question before the court was essentially, does the, you know, uh, is the ministerial exception, I guess, extended to these uh, decisions about these teachers? Can you fill out the background on this case a little more? Yeah, basically that issue was to what extent, who is a ministerial employee in a religious institution? Now, why does that matter? Well, in one of the most important uh, religious liberty cases of the last 20 years, the Supreme Court during the Obama administration held nine to zero that anti-discrimination statutes, non-discrimination statutes did not apply at all to ministerial employees. So, um, statutes prohibiting discrimination on the basis of age, race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, et cetera, et cetera, veteran status, et cetera. They just flat out don't apply to ministerial employees. And this was a 9-0 decision. Why was this important? Well, one of the reasons why it was important is because non-discrimination statutes are growing in scope and intruding into an awful lot of areas of life. Now, people can have a lot of differing opinions about how broad non-discrimination statutes should be, but on their face, they were very broad, and on their face, they would seem to apply to religious institutions, which would then inject this government into the pastoral selection process, um, the minister selection process. And the Supreme Court said 9-0, threw up a giant red stop sign and said, no, the interplay between the free exercise clause and the establishment clause blocks the state absolutely from being involved in ministerial selection. But it didn't really define a ministerial employee in a way that clearly comported with the actual practice of religious institutions because it kind of created a combo test of, stat of title and function. 
it, you know, what was your title? And there are easy questions. Priest. <laughs> obvious. Well, yeah, obvious. Uh, but what if your title is, um, what if your title is teacher? And one of the things, one of the many things that you teach at a Christian school is like, let's say you teach English and you teach a Bible class. And let's say you're not even a part of the religion of the school. Uh, you're not you're not part of the denomination or part of the or uh, part of the Catholic Church, and you're te- teaching in a Catholic school. What is in that circumstance the definition of a ministerial employee? How much does title matter? Um, and so this was an issue that was being worked out in the lower courts, and most of the circuit courts uh, put the emphasis not on the title but on the function, which in my view is exactly right because think of how many. Um, how many churches and parachurch organizations have people engaged in very important religious instruction who not only don't have a title, they have um, maybe no theological instruction. Um, I, you know, I would say 90% of my Sunday school teachers when I was growing up didn't have a day's worth of theological instruction. They were lay leaders. Well, if I remember from my Catholic school education, it would depend on the grade level. If, you know, some uh, lower grades in particular, you teach almost all of the classes to uh, subjects to all the classes that you have. But at higher grade levels, you may be a science teacher, you may teach, you know, a, a physical education class, but you might not have religious instruction as a part of that. So this is theoretically could apply differently to different teachers, depending on what your course load was. Well, and, and, you know, I come from evangelical Protestant land, and the way it works in a lot of evangelical schools is, let's say you're an English teacher, uh, let's say you're a science teacher, let's say you're a football coach, you're going to sign an agreement with a statement of faith, um, you are going to often lead Bible studies, you're going to lead the class in prayer, you're going to, um, in, in the course of being a football coach, you're going to engage in explicit religious instruction and imply biblical messages and, and, and principles into the experience of victory and defeat. I mean, it's the, the religiosity of the teacher is suffused through mm-hmm. the entire program. And so most courts were saying, look, we're just going to look at the function, the function of the teacher or the function of the, of the uh, official at a, at a religious institution. And the Ninth Circuit looking at a couple of cases where uh, teachers at Catholic schools were fired allegedly, uh, one for age and one for illness, which would have violated uh, non-discrimination law. Um, the Ninth Circuit took a much stricter approach uh, and and looked at, you know, theological training, looked at title, et cetera, et cetera, and very narrowly construed the ministerial exemption. So it went up to the Supreme Court. Now, why was this really important? Well, we can't talk about this case without talking about another case, Bostock. So by a 6-3 margin, the Supreme Court earlier in the term had held that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applies uh, to or prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and and, uh, gender identity. Um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applies to non-ministerial employees of religious institutions. So all of a sudden, the question was, are religious schools, for example, going to be required to hire a gay teacher, even if the teaching of the church is that homosexual sexual activity is a sin? 
That would be a big infringement on traditional religious liberty. Um, so you had this Title VII case hovering out there, and then you had this one. And what the Supreme Court said in this case, again, 7-2, was that it's the function test. It's not the title, title plus function. It's the function test. And that's very, very important because at a stroke, what it did is it essentially said about the Bostock decision, it doesn't apply to religious institutions when your employee, to those employees who have a religious function within the religious institution. And so on the one hand, what ended up happening was the Supreme Court earlier in the term said to LGBT Americans, you have much greater legal protections in the workforce. And then on the other hand, just a few weeks later, said to religious institutions, you have much greater freedom from non-discrimination statutes than you ever had before. And so what ended up happening was in the secular workplace, the Supreme Court protected uh, LGBT Americans from discrimination to a degree they'd never been protected before. And in the religious workplace, they exempted from non-discrimination law employees of uh, religious, uh, religiously functioning employees of religious institutions from non-discrimination law to an extent they'd never been exempted before. So it started to look a lot like um, something like the Utah Compromise on Non-Discrimination, and that refers to a Utah non-discrimination law that broadly protected LGBT folks in the workplace and broadly, simultaneously broadly protected religious liberty and religious institutions. And that compromise was something that activists on both sides did not like at all. And then the Supreme Court said, uh, this is what you're going to have. So that's basically the, the, the story of this term on religious liberty. Let's take a quick look at Bostock. Uh, did you find Justice Gorsuch's opinion in that case uh, compelling? Because obviously, I think there was a lot of consternation about how that case was decided, at least on the textualist grounds that Gorsuch argued it. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I, I found myself believing the case after reading oral argument in the briefs to be a lot closer than I thought it would be going in. Um, and because for two reasons, one is statutory. The other one is tactical. The statutory reason title sevens, just a really broad law. Like it's really broad. It doesn't really define its terms very well at all. When it prohibits discrimination on the basis of uh, you know, race and sex and religion doesn't really define those terms very well at all. And so um, what has ended up happening is courts have been struggling for years to define what sex means in many multiple various contexts. So that was the so there's a statutory issue here. This is just a broad law. Would this be another example, perhaps, then, of Congress not uh, doing a sufficient job of defining its own terms? Well, yeah, especially considering the fact that there's a lot of historical evidence that the sex discrimination provision, uh, the sex discrimination prohibition in the law was put in as an intent to, as a part of an uh, intention to sabotage the law. In other words, a a a pro sort of pro segregation lawmaker thought, if I make this law broad enough, then people will balk at it. Then the lawmakers will balk at it. So inserted sex into a statute that was designed mainly to deal with race, not sex. And they got passed anyway. 
<laughs> so, oops. You know, so if people are going like, "What's the original intent here?" which is a, a misreading of what originalism is. But if you're going at the what's the original intent here? Well, the original intent might have been that the sex provision should torpedo the whole thing. But no, you have the sex uh, discrimination provision, sex discrimination prohibition right there in the text. And then no meaningful amendments to the law since 1964. And so that's broad. It's really broad. And so here's what the advocates did. They essentially said, look, Justice Gorsuch, they did not try to argue that this um, this sex discrimination provision implies larger principles of fairness and dignity and et cetera, et cetera, which might appeal to sort of a more activist judicial mindset. No, here's what they did. They went and they said, Justice Gorsuch, we're not going to say that there's a difference between sex and gender in this law. We're not going to say that there isn't such a thing as biological sex. Here, sex means sex. And sex means biological sex. And guess what? You cannot, in a workplace, discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity without also discriminating on the basis of sex. I remember reading that and thinking, A, huh, B, that's pretty pretty brilliant lawyering, and C, after the oral argument, I thought Justice Gorsuch is going to side with uh, the plaintiffs in this case. And and the way it worked is essentially this. If you're a guy, imagine there's a company picnic. If you're a guy and you go to a company picnic with another guy and there's a girl and she goes to the company picnic with a guy. The guy and the girl have both engaged in identical activity. They've gone to the company picnic with a guy. What's the distinction between those two people? The guy who brought a guy to the picnic or the girl who brought a guy to a picnic? They're sex. They're sex. So you are necessarily discriminating on the basis of sex, even if you're also discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. And I'll be honest, you know, I read the Gorsuch um, majority opinion and I was, I found it compelling. And then I read the Alito dissent and I found it a bit more compelling, but it was a lot closer than I thought it would be. And I think a lot of these conservatives who are just piling on to Gorsuch are just wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just wrong. I think it was a lot closer case than a lot of conservatives thought it would be. And the lawyers for the plaintiffs were a lot, were, were pretty frankly intelligent and brilliant in the way they approached it. So uh, now what's interesting is I think there's a good chance that Roberts joined the majority just for the purpose of assigning the opinion to Gorsuch so that it would be written on narrow textualist grounds and not on broad sort of fairness and justice grounds that like say a Sotomayor or a Ginsburg might write it. So what's one of the things that struck me as interesting about the Gorsuch opinion and then, of course, the, the Alito dissent and even the Kavanaugh extent to a certain uh, dissent to a certain extent was that this uh, actually teases out a difference between originalism and textualism that is often mm-hmm. glossed over that, you know, it's it, it we the uh, I think often the terms are used interchangeably to just kind yeah. of mean federalist society types. Um, yeah. <laughs> and there seems to be so much overlap in the Venn diagram between textualism and originalism that you don't often get opportunities to see the differences in those approaches. And we actually did get an opportunity here to see them between Gorsuch and Alito in the way that they approached this case. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And that's, you know, and that's why these distinctions matter. Now, there are people who are listening who, who might be really steeped in this and they say, no, 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 you're misreading it. It wasn't textualist versus, textualist versus originalist. It was bad originalism versus good originalism because they both tried to use the original public meaning of the of the words and or as, I think as, that, as I read Kavanaugh's dissent basically saying yeah Gorsuch you're doing textualism but you're doing it poorly right exactly exactly and you know the I thought one of the best points that Alito scored was like wait a minute wait a minute let's pull it away from the isolated hypothetical uh, like if the per, you know the of the gay person at a company picnic let's say an employer has a policy that says no LGBT Americans need apply. Let's say they just were that blunt and obvious. Well, they're writing that policy without knowing the sex of the applicant at all. They only will, they're barring the sexual orientation only of the applicant. They don't know the sex of the applicant. And so how could that be sex discrimination? That's exclusively sexual orientation discrimination. And I think Gorsuch's answer to that is, but it's still all the same in practice, because in practice, setting aside the policy, in practice, you're still going to be treating men and women differently for identical conduct. And there's no way around that. And, and so that's why it went, you know, it went back and forth um, and was, I think, a much closer case because a lot of people can't get original intent out of their minds. Um, original intent is not original meaning. Those are different things. Um, so you would say to, because both Gorsuch and everybody agreed that the, the people who enacted the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not intend to cover LGBT employees. They did not intend that. But statutes are interpreted by the words on the page, not the thoughts in the head. And if Congress wants to translate the thoughts in the head effectively— it needs to write the words on the page more precisely. And why, and you would say to me, well, wait a minute, if we know what people are thinking in their heads, why can't we just cut to the chase? Well, congressional intent's kind of a funny thing because you know what? There's a lot of lawmakers. And as I said, one of the elements of intent in this case was to torpedo the whole bill. So if we're going by the intent of the actual person who inserted it, then the uh, the only original intent you could assume there is that the whole thing should be blown up because that was the intent of including sex. Yeah. And this is also a cautionary tale to people. If you think that nominating originalist or textualist judges is going to guarantee outcomes in the Supreme Court of the United States that you prefer and that textualism or originalism is your disguised way of saying, what I really want is just judges that rule the way I like. You're just going to be disappointed. And because the reason is the meaning of text is not always clear. I remember I had a case uh, many years ago, Eric, where literally the text was indecipherable. That the drafting job by the legislature was so poor Conventional rules of grammar could not decipher the text. They couldn't. What do you do? What do you do in that? So there's, there is um, an assumption, I think, that a lot of people have, especially on the right, that originalism or textualism means I like these outcomes. 
And what Gorsuch kind of tends to do on a pretty regular basis is say, nope, I don't think so. Like the McGirt case in Oklahoma. Uh, citizens of Oklahoma woke up this, uh, this morning or by about, um, I don't know, 1030 uh, a.m. yesterday, realizing about almost half their state was actually a Creek Indian reservation. Who knew? And, and they didn't know it. And how is that possible? Well, cause, because Congress granted the Creek Indian Reservation, and it never took it back. And Gorsuch is like, this is what the statute says. And yeah, it's complicated. And yeah, there are consequences. And yeah, there are ramifications. But too bad, so sad, the law says what the law says. And that's in an instance where, and I saw all of these quote-unquote conservative legal minds on Twitter going, what's Gorsuch doing? Reading the statute. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think um, the reactions and uh, what I, perhaps cynical reactions to this are looking at Gorsuch in this case and even perhaps um, you know a, a certain legal reasoning from Alito? And we can get to John Roberts in, in a minute here because I have a question on John Roberts uh, and saying, you know, look, we have these these people who they view as our guys, our conservative guys on the court are doing all of this process stuff to arrive at conclusions that they may not like politically. And, you know, we can view the justices that were nominated by Democrats, the, uh, the justices on the left, on the court, perhaps, you know, I don't think we can treat them all as the same, but because um, uh, Elena Kagan is interesting to me, even if I don't agree with Justice Kagan, but they look at perhaps someone like Justice Sotomayor, and it seems like she is a political actor, and she is delivering outcomes. She she has the outcome she wants, and then she works backwards on the legal reasoning and saying, well, if they can have that, why can't we have that too? Well, I, I you know, I would say that conservative critique of the court is overblown to an extent. Um, Here's what ends up happening is we tend to focus on the 5-4 decisions. Hobby Lobby, 5-4. Obergefell, 5-4. There's a lot of important decisions that were 5-4 with the five Republican nominees on one side and the four Democratic nominees on another. And then you'll look at Bostock, which is 6-3. Well, Obergefell had the four Democratic nominees and one Republican nominee, Kennedy. So that's a famous example of, oh, look, see, they flipped. Or the... Um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey going back to 92. And it's very true, particularly with abortion rights, that the Democratic-nominated justices tend to be quite uh, supportive of abortion rights, almost no matter the fact pattern of the case. But when you move outside of those cases, um, the alignments and get more interesting. So Bostock fits that Republican critique. You had the four justices that were Democratic-nominated joined by the two Republicans. And they go, see— Look, our guys are squish. Their guys are strong. And then nothing, nothing like that was said when Hosanna Tabor was decided 9-0 for religious liberty. Mm -hmm. um, Trinity Lutheran in favor of religious liberty, 7-2. Masterpiece Cake Shop in favor of religious liberty with a, a Christian baker who declined to custom design a cake for a gay marriage, to celebrate a gay marriage, 7-2. Guadalupe exempting a giant number of employees from um, non-discrimination laws, 7-2. Uh, 
So you're seeing, yes, there are the five fours, but there's also some seven twos and some nine O's. And I think the better explanation for what's happening, and I'm, I'm writing, actually writing this up as we speak, well, not as we speak, but before we spoke and after we speak, um, I think the better explanation of what's happening is that there are a minority of justices centered around um, Roberts and Kagan and to a lesser extent Breyer, who, let's just say, have a degree of philosophical alignment on where the law should end up in the area of religious liberty and its uh, interaction with LGBT rights. And they are very cleverly maneuvering the court in that direction because they collectively represent the decisive swing. And so when the Democratic nominees will help them move that ball, they'll go there. When the Republican nominees will help them move that ball, they'll go there. Mm -hmm. And so what's ending up happening is the court, led by Kagan and Roberts, is moving the United States of America to the Utah Compromise whether any American legislature outside of Utah has said yes to that or not. Right. And that's what's happening. So what would you then make of the current climate um, around religious liberty in America? So I think there's, obviously we're here talking primarily about the law and the Supreme Court in this case. So you have a legal element, but you also have the cultural element. I'll ask you to weigh in on both because I think some of the pessimism about the culture on religious liberty comes from the question of, you know, it's People find it depressing that Masterpiece Cake Shop has to be a case that the court decides and that it is not a clear nine to zero decision, that people find it depressing that um, the Little Sisters of the Poor are before the court three times in order for them to not have to you pay their money for something that violates their religious beliefs, which is very much a cultural argument, but it feeds on the, the legal argument and the legal climate question as well. Now, the interesting thing is, if we're under Scalia's jurisprudence, the Little Sisters of the Poor would have been toast a long time ago. But that's a whole nother conversation, which is a little bit of head exploding for a lot of conservatives. Sure. This is complicated. But anyway, I'm previewing my Sunday newsletter for you, Eric. We have to understand the difference between liberty and power. Okay. Liberty... There is more religious liberty in the United States today than there has ever been in the 200 and some odd year history of this country. What do I mean by that? What is liberty? Liberty is your ability to do what you, liberty is what you exercise in the face of and in defiance of power. In other words, if the state tells you no, liberty says yes, you can. Um, A lot of people, however, mistake those two things because if they have power, They experience that as liberty. They experience their power as freedom. And so what's ended up happening is for a long time, the sort of the white Protestant establishment in the United States has had an enormous amount of power in a nation that did not have a huge amount of religious liberty. And so they experience that as freedom. I have the freedom to sit my government, my public schools, my kids are going to hear evolution. uh, uh, They're going to hear creationism taught. Uh, they're going to hear a, they're going to have the uh, KJV Bible read out of, under the intercom. There might even be a Bible lesson. Wow, look at all that liberty. Well, did Catholic students experience that as liberty? They experienced that as power. Um, did Jewish students experience that as liberty? They experienced it as power. 
And then because the government schools were so strong, the public schools were so strong, if there was a limited ability to form things like a Catholic student group at a Protestant public school or a Jewish student group at a Protestant public school. But the Christians who were like all groups of America, the Protestant Christians who like all groups of America, mainly, you know, they're concerned with their own deal, thought things were fine. Um, and so the Blaine Amendments are an example of if I asked somebody right now to say, does, did America have more religious liberty 100 years ago than it does today? A Protestant, white Protestant Christian's probably going to go, yeah, of course. We'll ask Catholic immigrants mm-hmm. if that was true. Mm-hmm. So power is not liberty. Those are two different things. Um, what has happened in the last particularly 50 to 60 years, is the white Protestant establishment has lost power, but has gained liberty. And it has lamented the lost power, often without appreciating the gained liberty. And so the interesting thing is, back in Protestant establishment days, you know, I get it when somebody says, 50 years ago, nobody, you wouldn't have a regulation that would force nuns to buy contraceptions by contraception. Well, 50 years ago, you had validly enforced Blaine amendments of full strength in more a majority of states in the United States. So was there more or less religious liberty? No, the power has shifted, but liberty has expanded in response to the shift of power. And um, and so that's where I think that's the tension. That's the tension. And now here's the next thing about it. The power of the white Protestant church was inevitably going to diminish, inevitably, because why? America was becoming more diverse and pluralistic, Mm -hmm. just its raw numbers, Um, because, you know, the, the white Protestant church, which had sort of the power, the cultural power, was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller relative to the size of the whole. And I think a lot of people are just kind of, they're disoriented by this, as you would be, as human beings are. They're very deeply disoriented by it, and they don't have the theological tools because they haven't really had to think about political theology all that much. It's always been very issue-specific, religious liberty, um, abortion, etc., Um, A lot of times they don't have the theological or practical experiential tools to deal with the loss of power. And, and that, and we got to get them fast, got to get them fast because uh, America is not getting more white and more Protestant. So I had a question about uh, Justice Roberts, but something tells me we'll have plenty of opportunities in the future to talk about Justice Roberts. So I think, uh, David, we will leave it there. Uh, David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, thedispatch.com, co-host of the Advisory Opinions podcast and the author of the upcoming book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Caroline Roberts is a voice that you have heard on this podcast for more than two years now, and we're both 
happy and sad to announce that uh, Caroline is uh, leaving the Acton Institute uh, for a great new opportunity. So she, she will no longer be a voice that you hear on the podcast on a weekly basis. But of course, she's incredibly instrumental in building Acton Line into what it is now. Uh, Caroline, can tell everybody a little bit about uh, what, what it is you're going to be doing? Yeah, well, I've taken a new position as a strategic communications writer at Alliance Defending Freedom. So I'll be helping to write and shape content to elevate ADF's brand. And I'm very excited about that. Um, And ADF is, of course, a nonprofit legal organization that defends the right of every American to live out their faith. And they defend marriage and family, sanctity of life, and, of course, free speech. Well, congratulations on that. With regard to Act in Line, um, I wonder if you could just share some thoughts on the growth of the podcast over the last uh, two plus years um, and how it has become what people know it as today. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, back in 2017, I was um, I took over the podcast, and at the time, it was called Radio Free Acton. We had, I will admit, a pretty small listenership, um, but I had a lot of fun, um, kind of feeling like a little mini entrepreneur and taking that under my wing, and really, you know, rebranding it, giving it a new name, giving it a new cover. Um, bringing all sorts of guests onto the podcast because before then, um, you know, episodes that had come out would they would probably only come out about a couple times a month, um, but then we started releasing them every single Wednesday, and that was so exciting. Beforehand, I had never really had experience talking in front of everyone, which is a little obvious at the time, but you know, obviously, I got more comfortable on the podcast, and I had so um, much fun with it, and then getting to know the listeners on, too on a personal level um, was a lot of fun. Do you have any memories that stick out particularly to you of either any episodes or interviews or or any part of producing it over the last uh, couple of years that really sticks in your mind? I would say, um, you know, the episode with Chris Scalia, of course, the late Justice Antonin Scalia's son was so much fun. I really enjoyed that interview, Um, as well as an interview with a woman named um, Valentina Carillo. She was the granddaughter of um, people who had lived through the Holodomor, which was um, a forced famine that happened in Ukraine um, back in the 30s. I really loved hearing about her story. And that was really just why I loved the podcast so much was because I got to talk to people about their stories and why the things that Acton is so passionate about, why those make a difference in their lives. Um, yeah, I think those are the two episodes that really stand out to me. But, you know, every single conversation was so much fun. And sometimes I felt like I was learning things at the same time that my listeners were. And, it, yeah, it was just a great ride. Well, Caroline, thank you so much. Congratulations on the new position. We will uh, miss you at Acton. But thank you so much for all that you did in turning Acton Line into the podcast that listeners have come to know and love over the last couple of years. And, and best of luck to you in the future. Thank you, Eric. I will miss being on this podcast, but um, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, listening to the podcast in the future. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting the show together for you every week. And it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. You can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. 